on the programme The Art and Architecture of Ireland in five volumes. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. Six years ago, the Royal Irish Academy announced it was undertaking a mammoth project, a series of books that would present a comprehensive study of Irish art and architecture, tracing the history and development of visual and material culture in this country over many centuries, from early medieval times up to the present. At the time, I talked to the overall editor of the project, Professor Andrew Carpenter, and I remember comparing the undertaking to the field day anthologies of Irish literature. We looked forward with no little interest to the day when the five volumes would see the light. And he told me what the project was setting out to do. So what we're doing here is we're covering all artists, all architects, all sculptures, all patrons, all those who've been involved in art, right through from the very earliest times to the present day. In addition to that, we're including thematic essays throughout so that if you want to consider something like a particular type of sculpture or a particular type of building or the way in which uh, particular paintings are carried out and so on, there are essays on that throughout. Also, we have substantial introductions to each section, each volume, which are written by the editors of each volume, and each volume has its own editor. I hasten to add, I am not writing at all, uh, nor am I editing the individual volumes. I'm general editor of the whole project. One other thing that's important to point out is that it's always difficult to divide any great area. There are certain areas where there's going to be overlap between the medieval volume, which is edited by Rachel Moss of Trinity College, and the later volumes. The second volume is Painters and Painting from 1600 to 1900, and that's edited by Dr. Nicky Figgis. The third volume, Paula Murphy's volume, is on sculptors and uh, sculpture from 1600 through to 2000, which brings us up to nearly the the present day. The fourth volume is on architects and architecture with Rolf Lerber and Hugh Campbell, Professor Hugh Campbell, and they're going to work from 1600 to 2000, and that includes not just architecture, but the artisans, the patrons, the buildings, the building techniques. And the final volume is on printmaking, painting and photography and video art in the 20th century, and that is going to include everything which we have learned to experience in the 20th century. I presume we're talking about very big books. Yes, we have designed the book already. Uh, We have 500 pages, more or less, of text and illustration in each volume, and there'll be about 100 pages made up of indexes and notes and other materials, about 600 pages for each volume. We are planning two illustrations per page, but of course that depends on cost. We have to deal with finances there. And the books are also going to be arranged alphabetically. So rather like a dictionary, you know where to start. Everything's going to be cross-indexed, so you know how to find things in other volumes. There's going to be a, a short but clear bibliography to each entry, going to be a list of where the buildings can be seen or the paintings can be seen. It's going to be absolutely everything. The cut-off point of 2000. I mean, does that mean that there's no representation or reflection of work done in this 21st century? No, it does not mean that. But you have to stop somewhere. And it seemed to us that it made sense to stop at the year 2000 in principle. In practice, of course, there is a number of, of cases of both architecture, sculpture and painting where material has moved through the millennium and is relevant to us today. But we do not feel that it is appropriate for us to work on material which is absolutely fresh because the book is going to take four years to write and two years to produce. 
And the worst thing to do is to say that you're up to date and then not be up to date. So we're going to compromise where we want to uh, with the date. It isn't an absolute cutoff, but it is a cutoff of principle. There is nothing like this. And American universities, American students are always interested in Irish studies. There's a lot of sense in which we have not brought art and architecture up to the level of our appreciation of the writings of Ireland. And it's time we did so. So what, autumn 2014? Look, these things take time. And it takes time to... When when Yale brings out the book, they design every page. When you pick up a, a Yale book, every page has been designed. That takes time, even with computers. If an individual artist is anxious that they are represented. Is there any way they can make contact with any of the editorial team or go about, I suppose, making sure that they are considered at least? Initially, what we're doing on this one is we are working uh, as academics with the academic advisors. Each volume, each of the five volumes has an advisory board, three or four experts in the field who are helping to whittle down the long list of entries, about six or nine hundred people down to three or four hundred. Of course, this is a very contentious area. But um, it seems to me that the sensible way for an artist to get in is to have proved that he or she is really making a major contribution. There's no point in writing to us as such and asking to be included because we're going to be working on objective standards. But at the same time, we don't expect to miss anybody out. We're keeping our eyes open. So if you're a painter out there wanting to be in, the thing to do is to get painting hard (laughs) or building if you're an architect or sculpting if you're a sculpture or whatever. Professor Andrew Carpenter there from 2008. Well, those five volumes of Irish Art and Architecture have now seen the light of day and were launched at the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin recently. Louise Denver was there for Arts Tonight, where she first met up with Carmel Nocton, a crucial private supporter of the project. A, a long-time interest in the arts. It was first fostered in me as a 14-year-old in the Louis Convent in Monaghan when a nun made me president of the art club and suddenly she opened up a whole new world for me. The influence of a teacher on a child is amazing. A few years ago, Art and Architecture of Ireland was imagined as a two-volume set. But with the support of Carmel Nocton, the number of volumes now comes to five. When Nicola and Paula went to Professor Jim Slevin initially with the idea, Jim knew he'd have to get a private sponsor before it would get off the ground at all. So he thought of me and I met the two ladies and their enthusiasm was amazing. We met in the Marion Hotel over breakfast and it was funny, I'm going to say, As I left the table with a full Irish breakfast, I knew my purse was going to be emptied very quickly. From oil paintings to high crosses in Georgian houses, the volumes are an authoritative exploration of Irish art and architecture. Strickland was the starting point, the starting reference, and it's extraordinary that the registrar way back at the beginning of the 20th century did create a landmark that endured for almost 100 years. It is virtually 100 years since that was written. Raymond Keevney is the former director of the National Gallery. A huge amount has been written and added to what Strickland said. And so there really was a need for an update on the standard reference work. 
And of course, it expands the brief as well, because now it includes architecture and other defence. So it becomes a definitive reference work for people who want to access information on our visual heritage. I'd love to get to grips with the architecture, because there's the area I am particularly ignorant in, and it would be wonderful to have this Vadi Makem, you know, to reference things and educate myself on areas that I should be more knowledgeable about. In medieval times, and even into the early Renaissance, artists were considered craftsmen. They weren't known. It wasn't until, you know, the high Renaissance and people like Leonardo and Michelangelo, etc., etc., that artists began to be considered in their own right. And obviously we're still part of that. Artist Robert Bala features in Volume 5, 20th Century. I think that the appreciation of craft, the appreciation of skills, is something that's endemic in the human condition. We love things that are well made, that are beautifully made, whether that be a beautiful piece of contemporary furniture to a beautiful piece of clothing. I think there's something in us that responds to that kind of beauty, that kind of skill. Patrick Murphy, director of the Royal Hibernian Academy, was on the advisory board of Volume 5, the 20th century. And it's great to see the type of decisions that had to be made about who would be included, the type of arguments that had to go on about how much of a treatment one artist would get against the other artist. I mean, this is the type of contesting that we need to do in order to make a more rigorous culture. And it's out there now, and there's people's names on it. So I presume there'll be a little bit of controversy about who's been left out. Painter Anne Madden is one of the featured artists in Volume 5. It's very important for Irish people to see who they are, and they can only ever see who they are through their culture. As human beings, one of the things we do is try to find out what on earth we're doing here, who we are. And we only really find out about those things through science and through art. It's immensely important what has been done, but it's also not only important, but it is actually necessary. Looking back on the six years of production, Carmel Nocton reflects on the project upon its completion. It's wonderful, and I think it's going to be a resource for serious art history and architecture students, but also it will be for people like myself who are interested in art and architecture. We can just pick it up, dabble in it if you like. It would have been wonderful if we could have added a few more crafts, etc. But we had to draw the line somewhere. Volume 6, 7 and 8. <laughs> well, one never knows. <laughs> Carmel Nocton there at the recent launch of the five volumes of Art and Architecture of Ireland at the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin. Louise Denver there for Arts Tonight. Well, in the first of a number of occasional programmes to mark the publication of that landmark series, tonight we talk to five of the editors of the volumes and get a glimpse of the rich and complex landscapes they've negotiated and brought to light in their work. With me in studio, Rachel Moss, Nicola Figgis, Paula Murphy, Hugh Campbell and Catherine Marshall. And Nicola and Paula, if I could turn to the two of you first, because you're both acknowledged as planting the seed of the idea that gave growth to these five volumes. Both of you were working as art historians in UCD and I think you thought it was time for something new. Tell me how the discussion turned into what we now have. 
Nicola. Well, I think the initial idea was to update uh, Walter G. Strickland's Dictionary of Irish Artists. Really, since uh, then, so much had had. Uh, happened. So much had been published. Um, the art history departments of UCD and DCD had um, been established. Uh, theses had been written. Um, and of course, the whole digital age had arrived so that so much more could be discovered uh, digitally. Paul, Strickland is a name that comes up in, in, in the books. And, you know, this seems to have been the Bible that people refer to all the time. Uh, but it was time to, to rewrite the Bible. How did you think of negotiating that? What we have to take on board about Strickland is he dealt particularly with painters and with sculptors. Painters, Nicky's speciality and sculptors are mine. So we'd been working a lot in these two areas. And as Nicky says, there's new research out there and something needed to be done to update the material and just take it so much further. But it was a project that we couldn't do without some support. And um, I made an approach to the Royal Irish Academy, which was an unusual approach at the time because they really hadn't been involved with art history to date. And the president of the day was a physicist and we didn't hold out an awful lot of hope. But in fact, as you can see, there are five volumes there now and uh, it was a successful approach. However, it changed at that stage because Jim Slevin, who was the physicist and, and was then president of the RIA, he invited Carmel Nocton, uh, who became our main funder, to become involved in the project. She had just had a more expansive vision than we had. We were thinking very much of, of taking what Strickland had done and simply, I hate to say improving on it, but I but suppose, sense, yes, yes, we, yeah, we it, were, yeah. we were. But Carmel just said, why stop at Strickland? You know, why just painting and sculpture in that period? Why not medieval art? Why not architecture? Why not 20th century? And And so we had five volumes. So a much bigger and inevitably a much more interesting project and much more comprehensive. If we look at the, at the span of time, of history of, of art making, the year 400 to roughly now, how did you break that time span into coherent periods and subject areas? Rachel, if we start with yourself on, on the medieval, how did you set those parameters and how did you set about looking at that vast and incredibly rich terrain? Well, as you say, it is vast and it was quite difficult to decide at the very start where, where to actually begin because obviously Newgrange, Nouth, art and architecture. Where um, did it start? Where did it start? And, and it does start there, there's no question. So essentially, this is an, an art history and I think history is the key word here. We've lost an incredible amount, particularly from the earlier period. So Newgrange and Nouth probably aren't representative of what was truly art and architecture during the period that they were made. So with the first volume, with the medieval volume, what we decided to do was actually to, to start just on the cusp between myth and history. So where we could actually look at the very meagre survivals of art and architecture from the early medieval period, but actually place them within their context because this is when texts begin to emerge and we can actually see how representative what survives is what was even considered art during that period, which is very different to what's considered art now. So it was actually about constructing a, a much broader context in which to place 
quite small number of survivals. And that's what led to the, the decision for that start date. And it's a loose start date around 400 because it's very hard to pin down dates of things at this time. Um, it coincides essentially with the introduction of Christianity. So you get a greater production also of a, a new, new types of, of art form. How do you decide when the end of the Middle Ages is? Because certainly in terms of European art history, any self-respecting Italian looks at the date 1600 and they'd be absolutely horrified at that being referred to as, as medieval. In Ireland, we do have a longer Middle Ages and essentially that end date, again, is intended to be loose. So it's sort of a midpoint, let's say, between 1550, which is often the date that's given as the end of the Middle Ages, and around 1650, which in, in some cases we're still having tower houses built at that time. So essentially it's marking a period of, of gradual change, things like church reform, the gradual closure of monasteries, not, not a very sudden one, and also a change that becomes perceptible more so in the texts again in terms of uh, consumption and the consumption of luxury goods where you begin to see evidence of the speculative sale of artworks as opposed to commissioning one-off buildings from, from craftsmen or so on. So that was essentially what set the parameters uh, for that first volume. And um, Nicola, I think you make the point that you know, the, around 1600, we're looking at you know the the the, the end of the, the Tudor reconquest of Ireland. Yes, that's uh, right. The yes, death so of Elizabeth that, I. So yes. it's, it's it's time of it's a time of profound change. It's like an old order gone. The start of something new. So yes. I presume that was your reason as well for thinking well, this is the point to start. Yes, with, with, with the, the, your yeah. with your volume. Yes, um, and the, and the break off point then uh, for for Being, you again the reason for that. Well, really, it sort of coincides with the the death of Queen Victoria, which just comes in in 1901. So that's sort of a pretty good uh, cut off point. And and then of course Volume Five comes in after that in terms of of, of painting. I'm fascinated by those break. That as you flip through the books, and it takes quite a bit of flipping because each each book is about five hundred and fifty pages, and it just gets richer and richer as you go. And yet, that that span of time seems to make complete sense. Again, Paula, for you looking looking at sculpture and the period you, you choose, I presume as well, there's a certain amount of of looking back as well to be before the point you start at. There's looking back, and in fact, um, as Rachel said, so much is gone from the medieval period, well, so much is gone um, in terms of sculpture uh, as well. I think the starting point of, of 1600 also connected us still to Strickland in some ways, mm. um, so just sort of keeping him in there. But I was very keen to take it up to the end of the 20th century and actually even into the early 21st century because I have the last essay in the book is, is on what's happening now. But I particularly wanted to be able to show how sculpture has changed by the end of the 20th century, how the nature of sculpture has changed, the expanded field as one of the um, 20th century uh, art writers has called it, Rosalind Krauss, so that what we can call sculpture today is very different to what was traditional and I wanted to be able to include that development in the book. We're publishing in, in 2014 so um, you know that much of the 21st century had passed and it was a pity not to be able to include the up-and-coming generation and for them to be able to sort of have their mark within the volume. It got sent that essay by Cuevin McGillily. Yes. Um, Hugh, again, um, architecture and the, mm. the foundation of so much. Mm. Again, the period uh, that, that, that you choose. Why this particular period and what what are you focusing on in terms of the development of Irish architecture over those centuries? I suppose for us, the date of 1600 marked 
the beginning of consciously authored architecture, I suppose you could say, I'd take on board um, other things about the, you know, the, the post-Reformation period. I mean, there's other markers that are associated with around that period, 1600. But it's, it's possible to start talking about architecture, I think, in a slightly different way after that period. That being said, if you're then trying to get from there all the way up to 2000, you're going through many subsequent phases of development um, after that. And one of the challenges for us was to find a way of coherently dealing with that in extremely long time span. O- over which time span, in fact, the way of architecture being made, the way of architecture being experienced, and the way of architecture being talked about changed quite radically. Um, the impact that architecture had on people's lives would have changed quite radically over that period. So for all of those reasons, we felt that actually we didn't really want to take a chronological approach and we didn't want to take a biographical approach because we wanted to talk about the full range of the designed and built environment and we wanted to talk about the people who were involved in the making of it, the techniques and methods that were involved in the making of it, the sort of way they talked about it and wrote about it, the drawings they made, some way of making all of that available to the reader. Once we had that feeling that we we were going to take on that range of material, the challenge of it being four centuries fell away to an extent because we knew that it would be possible to... And, and sometimes we have entries where you can run quite quickly through four centuries mm. and sometimes you've got entries where you're focusing on a particular moment or a particular event or a particular building. I think we all... I mean, there were five of us involved in editing the volume and I think we that variety was one of the things that we wanted to hold on to. What are, what are some of those examples of, you know, moments where you're, you're really focusing on, uh, on on a span in a, in a you know, in what well, seems like a short enough... I mean, if, like there's particular types I can think of, like a Martello Tower, for instance. The Martello Towers we know as very familiar forms mm. around the Irish coastline are really the product of about 10 or 15 years. Mm. The workhouses, the same not very happy episodes maybe in Irish history, but but that they're associated with a particular political moment and architectural form is found that responds to that and it proliferates and then in a way it that stops, something else comes in. And then on the other hand, in, in terms of the longer range, you can look at, in quite a compressed form, the development of the school type, for mm. instance, a very familiar building type to really everybody in Ireland and, and how that and the thinking about it and the way it's designed and where it sits in the settlement, how that changes and evolves mm. over, over four centuries. So some types are persistent and, and evolve quite slowly. Others are intermittent, I suppose you would say, or occasional. I suppose all of that, is, again, for me, what you're saying illustrates um, a, a general sense I came away from the book's width, which is that they cover so much of life and history. Mm. You know, the visual, what we think of as the visual, actually impacts on every aspect of life. Mm. And even there, you know, from the, the initial, you know, Newgrange, uh, the workhouses, through all of life is that, that we get right then into the 20th and 21st century, Catherine. And you had perhaps the unenviable task in a way of, of looking at the, at the 20th century. And through that lens, we see so much of life. and But I, I presume there were particular challenges because I think, isn't it true that Strickland didn't actually write about living artists? Absolutely, yes. Um, and Strickland, do. we do, we very much do. I suppose, though, we felt very much that the 20th century posed significantly different problems to the earlier centuries in that artists now um, present their own what they want to be known about themselves Mm. and they market themselves in a way that they couldn't have done in the past every artist 
I think, has a website now, every living artist. And uh, okay, that's a fairly recent development, but some of them have sort of rewritten their own earlier careers as well as they look back over it on those websites. We were very conscious of that and we were also very conscious of the art writing that had emerged in Ireland from about the 1970s. Nikki's already referred to the, the first universities, courses in art history. And I mean, quite soon after those courses were set up, a spate of writing on Irish art appeared, but none of them actually dealt with the 20th century completely. There were a couple of books that took, sorry, the first half of the century or the second half, and they tended to very much inherit a tradition laid down by Strickland, which was very much about named artist and the biography of the artist. And while that was tremendously important, we felt that there were also other things that needed now to be known because we're very conscious, if we work with living artists, of all the other agencies that influence the kind of work that they make. We wanted to make sure that some of that appeared. And of course, the other thing, we're maybe much more aware of in the 20th century, our audiences for art. So we wanted to talk about how those audiences were encouraged or developed or not, actually, which is more like the truth for most of 20th century Ireland, and how the development of an audience hugely affects the development of the artwork as made when that starts to happen. And of course, you're also in the 20th century looking at the establishment of the Irish state, and, and the impact that that has. It's enormous. The state had a very particular view of the visual arts in the 20th century, mainly a very narrow, very restricted view. Uh, they favoured language and literature, especially the Irish language, over a number of other disciplines that would have been present in the 19th century in primary schools, like you know, the study of natural science, um, drawing, music and so on, all of those were gradually peeled away in the 1920s in favour of an emphasis on, on language, which then, of course, became the set curriculum until the 1970s. So people who, whose only access to education was primary school, and that was a great many people in 20th century Ireland, had absolutely no sense that they had any right to even look at or comment on the visual arts. So it was, we wanted to log that and to say how things changed with the advent of much more exhibitions, radio, television, um, new ways of communicating what visual art was about. And of course, the introduction of the Irish Museum of Modern Art in the 90s and the art centres that now proliferate in every county. And in a way, it's almost remarkable to think that it wasn't until the 1990s that we got the Irish Museum of Modern Art. But the state, again, the Irish state, obviously a very direct impact on both architecture and sculpture. Uh, is there a continuity in the tradition of sculpture from earlier times through that? And do we see then a strengthening of, of the tradition with the development of, of the state? I don't know that we see a strengthening in that particular aspect of sculpture because we have coming into the early 20th century, obviously we have all these imperial monuments, uh, mostly in Dublin, but some of them across the country. And it's not really the case that in heroic portraiture there is much change. You know, statue of Michael Collins that went up down in Clonakilty in the early part of this century 
is you know, much the same as any of those earlier monuments. So there's a tradition in heroic public sculpture that doesn't really change that very much. Other types of public sculpture, yes. I mean, there's, there's a great development in that. But in a nationalist commemoration, a Daniel O'Connell or um, a Lord Lieutenant, there really isn't much difference. And they're done by the same artist, actually. So I, I, I don't see a great development. Uh, I don't ever think there'll be a great development in that area. <laughs> uh, heroism is, yes, is you know... It, it, it's, it's, it's hard to capture it, in, in stone or bronze or whatever. Well, when well, I, when I, just I, I don't think so much that it's, it's hard to capture. It's hard to change it. Mm. I mean, it's done in a particular way. It has been done like that since the ancient world and it goes on. Mm. Sometimes it's not a bad idea that some things continue as long mm. as there's variety elsewhere. Hugh, in, in terms of architecture then as well, the impact of the state, mm. we see it at, at so many levels and continue to see it mm. uh, for good and, and, and bad in, in its impact on architecture. But a, yeah. a very interesting area, and I presume one that even books on this scale can only begin, begin to describe and begin to engage with. I, I, I might respond to that in two ways. I suppose, first of all, um, particularly in relation to the state, the post-1922 Ireland, I think, Architecture did respond to the formation of the new state and there was a call upon architecture to represent new values, if you like, and and new possibilities for that new state. One might particularly associate that with new building types, hospitals, uh, schools to an extent, universities and heroic projects like the hydroelectric scheme on the Shannon. These things become I suppose, rallying points in a way for the new state. At the same time, there is an inherent conservatism. So I think that's a very specific strain of development that doesn't necessarily represent a more widespread embrace of the possibilities of modern architecture. But of course, across the whole span of our uh, volume, the presence of the state, the influence of the state on the shape of the nation's architecture is absolutely fundamental and increasing all the time. I mean, one of the points that we make, we have a chapter about the civic and institutional architecture, is to say that as you move really into the 19th century particularly, it's very difficult for a citizen to live outside of the reach of architecture in a way that it would have been probably in in the 17th, even the 18th century. But it starts to play a greater role Mm. in in their lives and, and its language and its form starts to have an influence on them. So again, looking at the totality, the the overall impact of these five volumes, one of the very obviously really strong elements is the visual itself. I mean, there are, I think, what, over 3,000, about 3,000 images. Rachel, and this is interesting, especially starting with the medieval and working through, there was a sense almost of of a pattern beginning to emerge, of something beginning to make Mm -hmm. sense, where you could make a link between this detail in the medieval and something now, you know, late 20th, early 21st century. And, and, and that's, for me, one of the really strong elements of the books. And that's actually deliberate. Um, I think one of the issues that in a way has blighted particularly the, the study of medieval art history is that often it's actually considered as archaeology, not necessarily art history or architectural history in, in the case of buildings. And it was one of the things that I was very keen to do and also obviously in consultation with my fellow editors was actually to to look at it in a slightly different way and say this is a continuous narrative. We've talked already about the date parameters. In a way it would have been terrific if we could just throw those out the window but you have to have some kind of a structure Mm. and this Mm. seemed to work best Mm. also in terms of how people are still looking some people are just interested in the 20th century so that seems to make sense but there is 
definitely a narrative. So when Hugh was just speaking there about uh, the architecture of towns, of the, the civic area, I very deliberately included an entry on municipal architecture during the Middle Ages. And I talked about things like, again, the architecture volume broadens out the definitions of architecture. It looks at infrastructural projects. So I was very keen to look at, well, when did we first start paving our city streets? When were the first public lighting schemes? Where did the sewage in Dublin go? Which we might not immediately think of as being, you know, um, high architecture, but, but actually, Rather yes, important artistic, detail. very yeah. important detail. The, the first evidence I found of the proper management of, of sewage in Dublin is the great hole in the uh, old um, monastery of All Hallows, which is now where I work, Trinity College. <laughs> so, uh, very interesting little things that came out of that by, by I suppose, trying to explore and to actually look at, you know town architecture doesn't suddenly emerge in mm. 1600. So to try and actually trace back what we consider to be art and architecture today and where, where it has its mm. origins. I think similarly with public sculpture, the High Cross is one of I suppose, the great icons of, of Irish art. And we think of those crosses, like the one at Monaster Boyce, that are possibly late 9th, early 10th century, as being sort of frozen in time. This is one great moment when these are being erected. But we know that crosses were being erected from the 6th century and it continues on and in fact I contributed an essay to, to Paula's volume on the, the Celtic cross and the use of that cross form in the 19th century but there isn't a break, there's a continuity and indeed the very survival of those earlier high crosses actually means that they continue to be used and, and uh, venerated I suppose or appreciated. So I think our volumes, although they're quite separate, they're very much to do with continuities and telling stories. I presume you, you work closely. I mean, I presume there was a great deal of cooperation as editors in making sure that there was that coherent vision that not only that the look of the books, which is obviously very important, would be in some way consistent, but that everything would trace through in that way. Um, I think some of it actually also just happened because I think there are connections that we wouldn't necessarily... Um, I take the, the back cover of the architecture volume, the church in Kerry, Corpus in Christi, Knockenure, yeah. photograph um, people coming out of the church and it's got a glass front on it. It's there for its architecture. Well, if you peer inside the glass, Oshin Kelly's large wooden relief Last Supper, that's examined in the sculpture volume. So there are those interconnections as well across the volumes, which I think makes them interconnected in the same way that Rachel is saying, but done somewhat differently. Catherine and I, the 20th century volume, and mine artists who are working across different disciplines in the 20th century, who are working in 2D and in 3D, exist in both volumes. So there's interconnectedness in that way uh, as well. So while they're discrete volumes, it's very much a series. All of you, you know, are, are authorities, are leading figures in, in your own field. Nonetheless, I imagine that a project of, of this scale must have afforded great pleasure and, and great challenges. Um, not just, you know, maybe the obvious things like, in your case, Catherine, perhaps, you know, thinking of the 20th century living artists, making a canon, who's in, who's out, will there, will there be a perception of value judgments being made? But more than that, I mean, what for you were the particular challenges in which I suppose at, at least one challenge must be simply the scale of it all? Yes, and that's a problem, a challenge that we all had. I think another one, let's take the, the elephant for the 20th mm. century, which of course is the canon. The canon was a huge challenge because one of the things we wanted to do was explode the canon or show 
the way canons are formed, which are not always about aesthetic uh, considerations at all or are only marginally. Mm. There are all kinds of other things. So we wanted to log that. And we wanted to... I mean, what do you do with canons? You end up actually, whatever you do, expands the canon. It never erodes the canon. But expanding it was all right. But we wanted to be a bit subversive as well. Just, I think we have done that. In a but sense, are you writing a new canon? I suppose we are. Well, we're certainly developing the canon that existed. I'm sure the others would all say that too. But there were other challenges. One challenge actually had to do with images because, you know, Nikki had to find images from artworks that are in private collections or are dispersed around the world, but they tended to be single paintings or, well, single paintings or single drawings or print works. The problem in the 20th century is a lot of the work we wanted was installation art or video art Mm. or something like that. And if that's already in a major museum collection or something, and if you don't have a good photograph of it, you can't ask the museum to install it so that it can be photographed again. All of the institutions were very helpful and cooperative, but there were some things they just could not do. So, you know, that was a challenge. Another challenge, and I'm reminded of Paula's final essay, by Quivine McGillalay. We tried to get Quivine to write an essay for our volume. He was already writing the very essay for Paula's <laughs> volume. So that was a challenge as well. But I think actually that was maybe a really positive challenge. I don't know how everybody else feels about it because we haven't had this conversation, but there are 47 writers in my volume. Each wrote a good bit of our own volumes. But I think we'd all be really proud of the fact that it isn't just our voices. Mm. It is the voices of all the other writers. Mm. That's fantastic. It also spreads the responsibility to a considerable extent, which is nice, you know. But I, I presume as well, and certainly you get the sense in, in reading the individual volumes that, you know, that your own personalities as, as editors do come through, you know, that, that, that there is uh, a, a colour, you know, a, a pattern of something that, that, that comes from... a bit more evident, actually, from after yourselves. the fact, in a funny way. Mm. I, mean, I was thinking the challenge is it didn't exist when you, you know, when you look at it now, there's something inevitable about, and even along the way, it becomes increasingly inevitable, the shape of the volume you know, the organisation of it and so on. But at the outset, of course, none of those things are entirely clear. Mm. So actually the challenge is, in the first instance, to find a, a, a shape, a logic, which which you think makes sense. And then, I mean, like Catherine, or even more so, we had, I think, close to 100 contributors in our, we made the decision we wanted to get everybody in, in the tent, so to speak, because we felt that there were a lot of people out there who, who had a lot to say. So we had to then find a to contribute, we had to find a structure that would allow that to happen and that would capture as much of, of what is known as possible. And at the same time, again, referring to what Catherine was saying, trying to expand the sense of what do we talk about when we talk about architecture? Let's include infrastructure. Let's, well, include the vernacular. Let's include landscape. Let's include, let's try to broaden things a little bit as well and extend things up into the 20th century in a way that they haven't before. So, so there's that. How did, how did you do that? I mean, did, did you, with your fellow editors, did you have long discussions? Were you very careful about who, yeah. who you got to write for you? Did, you? did you steer the thing in a particular direction? Myself and Ralph Lober were the, the, the editors. Who, uh, Ralph originated the project, I came on board, and then we brought on three others, uh, Ellen Rowley, Livia Hurley and John Montague. And that team was great to me. That was a great strength for us, was to, ha- to be able to, to bounce ideas around and to, to try to evolve ideas. Is this biographical? Is it thematic? Is it chronological? What are the themes, if we are having themes? 
the talking through of that, I think, probably gave us all confidence in it. You had a great big spreadsheet. We had, a, that, we had a spreadsheet, yeah. the height of a person, it printed out. <laughs> Piece and, of architecture which, in itself. Indeed, it became certainly part of the architecture of our lives for, for a number of years. But it was just a way of controlling, you know, who's doing what. And, and it, I mean, I think projects of this scale have to be managed. A lot of it is managing. A lot of it is mm. is corresponding and talking to people and talking people down and talking people up and all of that cutting word count and in keeping fact, it on track I guess, yeah and a on the one challenge. hand it feels like a very big project but actually quite quickly it can seem like quite a small project because suddenly you're up against the limits of the, the page count That's right. the index how big it can be it's difficult to be comprehensive you know you know quite quickly that's not going to be the case so now how do you be selective Paula, were there particular challenges in in relation to sculpture? And I suppose, again, uh, in a way, describing sculpture in in a book, 3D, photography, sculpture photography, almost as an art form in itself. It is an art form in itself, absolutely. And I think, yes, a particular challenge in relation, was in relation to the, the illustrations, because sculpture is 3D and you're reducing it to 2D in a photograph. And in reality, for anything that I was wanting to illustrate, I should have had several images, not just one. But I had to make the decision that it was, and I have included this information in the preface, that it was better to include more work than to actually show a lot of details of one particular work and and take someone around it. That, in a sense, it takes me into another issue that I had that I think probably the other volumes didn't have, and that is that people don't seem to be aware of sculpture, that I have to sort of encourage them to get out there and get looking. So I was writing this and asking contributors to write for it, um, certainly as a scholarly tome, but I was also wanting it to serve as encouragement to people to get out and look at sculpture and see what's out there. And I mean, even still today, people who've spoken to me about the book, people doing uh, interviews, for example, about it, flicking the pages of the book and looking at it, and then looking at me in astonishment and saying, is this all out there? Well, I have to say some of it's not because it was blown up or whatever in mm. the early 20th century, but most of it is out there. Nelson isn't um, there. Nelson <laughs> isn't there, exactly. But a lot of it is out there. And, and, and people, I mean, coming into RTE here, I've seen quite a bit of sculpture on the way. There are a lot of bus. I bet nobody looks mm. at them. You know, and that's what happens. It's just there in the background and nobody's looking. So I'm trying to encourage people to notice sculpture as well. And is, is there a sense in which the, the book and, and, and the work you're doing is almost a little bit of a crusade for, for sculpture? Yes, the a crusade sculpture. for sculpture. I have a mission. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nicola, challenges for you um, in, in relation to your own volume? Well, I think our challenge was that we had so much material. We had a list of over 1,400 artists, a potential artists, uh, which was obviously far too long. We only ended up with um, 300 biographies. But what to do about the people who got dropped off, as it were? And what we came up with, the solution we came up with, was to sort of hoover up some of those people and put them into essays such as essays on visiting artists. And then there was another challenge from that, which was that we didn't want these essays to become like lists um, of people who visited. So it was quite important to kind of keep the context, uh, you know, uppermost and to try and make those essays as interesting as possible. And I think that the contributors who, who wrote the essays actually did succeed in that. Um, but that was quite a challenge. Um, I was struck by, I think it was in your preface, you talked about how the story of this 
volume was one of exodus, exchange and international endeavour. And again, there is the sense of, of the international all the time around all of the work. And I suppose it was, so we're looking at Irish art and yet it's constantly within this larger international context. Yes, I think so. Uh, my volume looks a lot at artists who travelled abroad for further training, whether it's in the 18th century going to Rome, uh, whether it was going to Paris in the 19th century. And so that's of interest. And, and a lot of them went to um, uh, to America as well. And um, But then you also get a lot of artists coming to Ireland and people like, say, William Ashford, who was born uh, in Birmingham, coming to live in Dublin. And uh, you know, this is where he produced most of his work. Um, he developed his interest in landscape painting in Ireland. Um, and he ended up being the first president of the RHA. So um, he was a very important figure and has really been kind of adopted as Irish. Rachel, again, you know, Ireland and Ireland from the word go, medieval times, again, there was this international context, this exchange, coming, going, movement. Mm, very much so. And I mean, that was something that I really wanted to bring out in my volume, as, as you've picked up on. The term insular has come to be used, particularly for the early medieval period. So referring to artworks such as the Book of Kells, the Ardad Chalice, Round Towers, High Crosses, those sorts of things. In that context, insular refers to Ireland. We tend to think of insular as being very inward looking. Mm. Even though the, the borders of, of Ireland as, a, as an island are obviously defined by the sea, at that time, the sea was, was the, the main way of, of, of transport, of, of, of travel. And so actually what we see during this very insular period is more the island actually absorbing outside influence as much as it's actually sending out influence um, again, along the, the watery conduits of Europe, so down the main rivers to Irish monasteries, for example, that were being set up. And although now if you go into any souvenir shop on Nassau Street or Suffolk Street or wherever, you're going to see endless souvenirs that, that draw on, on that insular art and, and define it very much as specifically Irish. In fact, what I try to do in, in my volume is to unpick the fact that these are sponges that are absorbing influences from right across Europe and indeed even North Africa from the South Mediterranean and it was a global art even then. Also I deal a little bit with some of the people that we know about who were involved in, in working in the arts and looking at uh, documents across Europe during the later medieval period where we know for example that it was an Irish sculptor uh, who was commissioned to work on, on royal monuments in the 1290s on the famous Eleanor Crosses. We have the account books it's William the Irishman who is one of the top sculptors working in these aisles. So it's it's a story of international and, and global influence, I think, right from the get-go. Materials, you know, it's essential to, to all of this mm. and uh, the colours that people used at the time, where they found yes. dyes. Yeah. All and of that is fascinating. It is. And I mean, that's something, again, some people said to me while I was spending the years and years drawing this together, you know, how can you possibly send anything new about medieval <laughs> art? It's all happened. Um, but one of the very exciting things, I think, with the study of medieval art, in particular medieval manuscripts, is the new technologies that are coming in that allow us to analyse things like the pigments that were being used in the manuscripts. For example, the Library at Trinity College over the last decade or so have been carrying out really cutting-edge tests on, on their manuscripts, all non-intrusive, so they're, they're not being damaged, that are really beginning to reshape the way that we interpret these. So just to give you one example, for a long time it was believed that the, the very vivid blues in the Book of Kells, which are still very vivid, were lapis lazuli and during the medieval period you know across Europe this was as more valuable than gold and was only 
quarried in what's now modern-day Afghanistan. So this was one of the, the really important things about the Book of Kells. And in fact, what our tests have shown us is that uh, that colour is made from much more locally procured materials, from woad, which is a plant dye, uh, and also from crushed seashells, which you can get all around the Irish coast, or indeed the Scottish coast, uh, if that indeed is where the Book of Kells was made. Either way, they're local materials, but it shows the ingenuity, I think, of the, the makers of the manuscript. They are trying to falsify the look of Lapis Lazuli, and they do it very, very well, and they succeeded for over Terrific. a thousand years. So there are new stories, I think, always emerging about these that are actually showing us much more about the ingenuity and, and um, I suppose, experimentation of the time. That idea of, of new stories emerging, and again, I suppose, maybe of, of new technology enabling some of these stories to come to light, must be part of all of your experiences in, in working on the book, you know, where, um, I suppose, technology does enable more cooperation, more sharing of information, access to information, uh, and I suppose a whole interdisciplinary approach that, that maybe makes everyone's work richer in a sense, Paula. A story that comes to mind in relation to new technology in the sculpture volume is more to do with access to material mm. rather than use of something new to, as Rachel's telling, uh, read a particular colour. Um, this was to do with tracking down the death of a, a sculptor who left Ireland in the 1950s bit disgruntled with the way his career was going here, although he'd been doing well, left, went to the UK and then went to the States and then disappeared off the radar. And Lawrence Campbell is his name. And he was indicated as being dead in Snoddy's Dictionary of Irish Artists, which was published in 1996 or thereabouts. So dead in the 1960s, relatively short life, forgotten about and written off. And by way of the internet, we were able to track down, actually, that he died in 2001 in uh, Chicago and therefore was alive when Snoddy was publishing his book and could, well, he wouldn't have been included, would he, because he was still alive at that point. But, you know, information could have been got from this man, which would have been of real interest because he was very important in the early decades of the 20th century in sculpture in Ireland. So it was by way of getting his social security number and then we could get his death certificate and then we were able to ascertain when he died. So a man who had actually a long life working away in the US. So again, you know, that, that small example of how how the story changes, all the you know may change all the time, uh, and and that's part of, of of the richness of this. And I suppose we we will talk about again whether there may be a, an online version of it in time. One would hope so because it would be we wonderful to see perhaps an online version that that might be amended, that might be updated, that might. Be, but I'm sure that costs money. But where do you think this places Irish art internationally now with with the five volumes? I mean, do you, do you think it will signal a shift even in the way art is perceived here? Because there has been for too long this uh, this notion about that, you know, the Irish are not particularly a, a visual culture, you know, that our, our strength is words and, and maybe music, but that the, we're weaker on, on the visual. For me, I have to say, these five volumes give lie to that. Maybe that's the biggest compliment that you could pay the five volumes. I'd love to think that you're right and that other people will pick that up too. Certainly, um, I think that artists through their work 
in the last 20, 30 years have been changing perceptions of the Irish as a visually illiterate people. But um, I think the work in the volumes and the fact that that will now be communicated to an audience at home. People internationally have been picking up on the contribution of Irish artists for many, for centuries. Um, but that isn't always recognised at home on the island. So I really hope Irish people will read these books and come away with that picture. Hugh, similarly in terms of architecture, I suppose for, for a long time there has been a perception that architecture isn't Ireland's strongest forte either. But uh, again, I think in, in the books we see an incredible strength over a hell of a long time. I think that's absolutely true. I think now and many points over the last four centuries there has been extraordinary architecture being made in Ireland and by Irish people elsewhere. I would hope one of the things that emerges out of the volume and actually the five volumes collectively is that it, it builds and contributes to the culture of regard for the visual arts and architecture, of scholarship, of curiosity, and actually that it also bridges across people who make art and architecture and people who study art and architecture. I mean, for my own part, I kind of range somewhere between the two. I mean, one of the great things about the launch event was that that whole community was brought together in a way that I think very rarely they would be. And that was a very big and very eminent community. And I would hope that what this endeavour collectively has done is to, to highlight all of that. The other thing, just to come back on your point about the idea of the, that one of the kind of threads of continuity maybe through the five volumes is that there might be a palette of materials and colours yeah, yeah. that is Irish yeah. and that you might be able to dip in and find it in a Gerald Dillon painting or a, something from the medieval period or a, or a particular kind of brick. Mm. I think the other thing is People, when they read the volumes, will find other connections, other relationships, will take other things from it than we intended when we, when we put them together. That must be the, the greatest thing, because then that takes them into the future, you know? And I suppose the point you made there, and one we sh- should bear in mind all the time, is that the books wouldn't be possible without the work of the artists Indeed. and the architects yeah. and all the makers over so long, mm-hmm. over the centuries, right up to now. But when you look at, at that span of time, Somehow through this, one senses that there is a almost a new way of of both looking out and allowing others to look in that can only be good for for all visual art in this country. Thinking back to my conversation with Andrew Carpenter those years ago, I'm thinking about the you know the field day anthologies mm-hmm. of, on literature and how in a sense they got a big debate going uh, mm-hmm. about literature and again inclusion exclusion uh, the nature of of what's valued etc. So I pres- I would hope that this that these volumes would will have a similar impact in in relation to to visual art in in this country and I, I suspect they they will. Incidentally, who who are the books aimed for? Who, uh, will it would be great to think they would be in every school in the country, for example, and every every public library? Do we know if they will? They have already been distributed to every county library across the island of Ireland. And you're making a very important point, I think, Vincent. We were very conscious all all of the editors in all of the volumes to make sure that the writing was consistently aimed at a general reader and wasn't too jargonistic or exclusive because that has been a feature of art writing in the past and we all wanted to avoid that. And did you all avoid it? (laughs) I think we did, but I think also something you mentioned earlier about the subject being interdisciplinary means that it is for everybody because people will hopefully find that art is actually part of their lives Mm. and they can learn so much about history, heritage, Mm. society from art. You know, it's not just about the artwork, it's about actually so much more. 
I think Anne Madden made that point at the, at the very beginning of the programme. Uh, no, I have to say, it's uh, for me, these five volumes are incredibly rich uh, and I've only begun to delve uh, and I've already uh, learned so much and I know that anyone who, who does have the opportunity to peruse the pages will learn so much and it is, for me, it is part of, of what feels like the opening up of a, of a conversation and we'll continue in a series of occasional programmes on the five volumes over the next weeks and months. Thanks to the five of you, Rachel Moss, Nicola Figgis, Paula Murphy, Hugh Campbell and Catherine Marshall, and indeed to all involved in this splendid undertaking and outcome. The series Art and Architecture of Ireland is published by Yale University Press for the Royal Irish Academy and the Paul Mellon Centre. Full details at ria.ie. On next week's programme, we'll open the pages of Volume 1 in that series, Medieval Art and Architecture of Ireland, 400 to 16. Join us then. Good night.